If you would turn to Genesis 2 in your Bibles, we're going to read the first three verses. The God who rests. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Please listen carefully to the Word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and who we are. Thank you for giving us Sabbath rest. Please give us understanding so that we know what it is and we know what to do with it. Thank you for creating us and redeeming us. Teach us how to use this day to be grateful. Help us to know you more this morning. For this we need your grace. So by your spirit, we ask that you would pour out your grace upon us for each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Dr. Lauren Winner is a writer for Christianity, Christianity Today and uh, is now a professor at Duke University. And she's a convert from Judaism to Christianity and uh, has written about that. And uh, she writes uh, very longingly about what she misses about Judaism. And uh, she writes, she came across this memoir entitled Stranger in the Midst by a woman named Nan Fink. Now, Nan Fink has sort of the opposite story. She is a convert from Christianity to Judaism, and particularly from fundamentalist Christianity to very orthodox Judaism. And at one point in her book, she describes what it takes to get ready for the Sabbath, which the Jews call Shabbat. And she writes, on Friday afternoon... At the very last minute, because uh, Shabbat goes from uh, sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. She writes, Friday afternoon at the very last minute, we'd rush home, stopping at the grocery to pick up supplies, flying into the kitchen. We'd cook ahead for the next 24 hours. Soup and salad, baked chicken, yams and applesauce for dinner, and lasagna for the next day's lunch. And sometimes I think how strange it was to be in such a frenzy to get ready for a day of rest. Shabbat preparations had their own rhythm, and once the table was set and the house straightened, the pace began to slow. Papers and books were neatly piled, flowers stood in a vase on the table, and the golden light of the setting sun filled the room. Shabbat is like nothing else. Time as we know it does not exist for these 24 hours, and the worries of the week soon fall away. Feeling of joy appears. The smallest object, a leaf or a spoon, shimmers in a soft light and the heart opens. Shabbat is a meditation of unbelievable beauty. And Lauren Winter went on and wrote about this book and reading it and how it affected her, and she commented that Nan Fink nailed it. Shabbat is like nothing else. And Shabbat is, without question, the piece of Judaism I miss the most. Shabbat is the Hebrew word in Genesis 2 that is translated by our English word, rest. Now, this issue of Shabbat, or Sabbath, 
is another highly controversial issue in the opening chapters of Genesis. Many of the commentators contend that the Sabbath, as part of the Old Testament law, has now ceased, having been fulfilled in Christ, and they have a lot of Scripture to argue their case. And there is some merit to their case, or Hebrews 4 becomes difficult to interpret. They would say the Sabbath commandment is no longer binding on us, being the only one of the Ten Commandments not directly reaffirmed in the New Testament, and now we have the Lord's Day instead, commemorating the resurrection of Christ. Many other commentators uh, m- tend to be much more uh, Presbyterian and Reformed, uh, say the New Testament simply changed the day in honor of the resurrection, but the commandment to honor the Sabbath still applies. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, says, as it is the law of nature, now this is an old English, but listen carefully, as it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So which is it? Sabbath or the Lord's Day or both? Is it still binding or not? Is it still helpful for us or not? Just what are we to do with this particular controversy? Who knows? Perhaps we should see what God's Word has to say about it. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and then back up one verse. Because before we can get to the subject of rest, we have to take a quick look at the subject of work, and specifically God's work. Starting at Genesis 1.31, we'll start there, and we're going to take a look at God's work. That should be the first blank there in your outline. And the opening verse of Genesis 2 should have been included at the end of chapter 1, because it completes the account of the six days of creation. Stephanus, the 16th century uh, printer scholar who introduced the verse divisions of the Bible uh, that we use today, uh, most things simply blew it here. He should have seen this because Genesis 2.1 is an echo of Genesis 1.1, which uh, begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 2.1 concludes, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And this echo is technically called an inclusio, which indicates Uh, the conclusion of the six days of creation. It includes everything in between those two verses. Now, the story is that Stephanus made his verse divisions while riding horseback, so we tend to go easy on him. But uh, 
You know, maybe you wanted to put it at the break at the end of 2-1, but, you know, it was doing that. It was a little hard. Anyways, the reading of 131 and 2-1 together expressed the contented satisfaction of God at the conclusion of day six. And we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And there's some quick things to learn uh, here. Notice the words, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now we were already told at the beginning of Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. But now there's a new phrase added here, Genesis 2, verse 1, and all the host of them. It's designed to express to us that the entirety of creation has been made and has been filled. The work is now brought to a conclusion. This phrase, uh, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, uh, in this phrase, God is proclaiming the completion of his creation work of the entire organized world. And we can look back at the beginning of Genesis. You can see the contrast. Genesis 1 started in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, empty. It was, uh, it was an empty place. And so now we're told that the heavens and earth are finished and all the host of them. It is a filled place. We've gone from emptiness to fullness. We've gone from the beginning of creation to the completion of creation. And so in that phrase, creation is brought to a finish. It was finished, this distinctive, special, creative work of God. So we have here the complete picture of the heavens and the earth and all they contain in their harmonious perfection. Rare earth, uh, as scientists now call it, uh, and it's the title of a best-selling book, uh, which argues that our position in the Milky Way and the juxtaposition and size of the planets in our solar system and the function of the Earth's moon and numerous other factors make it likely that Earth is the only place in the universe where there's life. However that may be, the first three days of forming creation and the concluding three days of filling it, capped by the creation of man, left creation lacking nothing. All that God had made was worthy of praise, and as such he gave it his highest condemnation, he said, and it was very good. That's oh, better. And so the earth spun perfectly in its orbit around the sun in a majestic 24-hour uh, rotation, and a well-ordered planet swarmed with life under the joyous watch of the first couple. Which brings us to the real subject of today's message, and that's the Sabbath. And any discussion of the Sabbath has to start with these verses, which teach us about God's rest. God's rest. Look at verses 2 and 3. God had formed and filled the earth, and now on the seventh day, he rested, starting at verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Can we put up the slide? There you go. The seventh day is 
significantly different from the first six days of creation. Uh, there's no creation formula, and God said, because his creative word was not required. The seventh day didn't have the usual closing refrain, and there was evening and there was morning to indicate the end of the day. The seventh day was the only day to be blessed and made holy by God. It stood outside the paired days of creation, as you can see on the chart. As Rich mentioned earlier, uh, you had uh, light and dark on the first day and the lights of day and night uh, on the fourth day, sea and sky on the second day, and the fish and the birds on the fifth day, a fertile earth and land animals, including man, on the sixth day. And so there is a structure uh, to creation. And then on the seventh day, there's rest and enjoyment. And the, these verses, uh, verses 2 and 3, are somewhat unique because they each they contain four lines, and uh, the first three are parallel. The first three lines actually have the same number of words in Hebrew. They each have seven words, and the middle point of each line is the phrase, the seventh day. So you can see up there how the Hebrew word order has it. God finished by the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day because on it he rests from all his work that God uh, created to do. And so the seventh day stands apart in solitary grandeur as the crown of the six days of creation. And this indicates not only a great literary craft, uh, Moses was apparently a fine writer, but deep theological significance. From beginning of creation, the seventh day was central, not only to creation, but to the ultimate destiny of God's people, as we shall see. You can turn the slide off. Thanks. So the first thing we see here is that God rested. Verses 2 and 3, each state that God rested. Verse 2 says he rested from all his work. Verse 3 adds he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So why did God rest? Well, it's certainly not from fatigue. You know, uh, omnipotence needs no rest because regardless of the amount of power that goes forth from him, his power is not depleted one bit. His omnipotent creating power is infinite. God didn't get through with man and say, now I need to take a breather. Actually, the word rest means to cease from. And God simply stopped his creating activity. And although God rested, ceased his creating activity, he still worked. Jesus says exactly that in John 5, one uh, part of that, when he heals a, a crippled man, uh, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. God rested from creating, but still works in sustaining the world by his power, governing it by his providence, ensuring the continuation of its creatures. In fact, if God truly stopped uh, all working, everything would just sort of spin out of control and dissolve into nothing. God's rest was one of deep pleasure and satisfaction at the fruit of his labor. The joyous rest of the Creator certainly extended to Adam and Eve in paradise as in their state of innocence they lived at peace with their Creator. And this original rest was the beginning of a type of rest 
That was lost at the fall, but will be restored uh, through redemption and final consummation at the last day. So that's the first thing we see is God rested. He ceased his creating activity. But he did something else as well. Next we see that God blessed. God blessed. He took such pleasure in the seventh day. He blessed it. It says, so God blessed the seventh day. So what does it mean to bless it? It means to make it spiritually fruitful. If you were here during Sunday school class, you saw Rich put up a chart on how we interpret uh, principles for interpreting the Bible. And uh, one of those was context is king. It's my favorite one because it's usually the only one I can just remember off the top of my head. The others I have to think about. Um, but there are two preceding blessings in this Genesis account of creation. In uh, Genesis one twenty two, there's blessing on the living creatures. In Genesis one twenty eight, blessing on Adam and Eve. Both these blessings bestow fertility because in both instances God said, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And the meaning here is essentially the same, but in a spiritual realm. God's blessing bestows on this a special day, this holy day, a power which makes it fruitful for human existence. It gives us this day, which is a day of rest, the power to uh, stimulate, animate, enrich, bring, and give fullness to life. You might say that uh, the seventh day is one of a perpetual spiritual spring something we're all looking forward to. You know, a day of multiplication and fruitfulness. This will become of great importance to God's people and greatly benefit God's people. And finally, we see here that God made it holy. Now, God ceased from his creation labors on the seventh day, pronounced it blessed, spiritually life-giving, and then made it holy. Seventh day was the first thing to be hallowed or made holy in Scripture is therefore elevated above the other days and set apart for God himself. So that's what God did. But it's not applied to us until later in the Bible. And to see that, we have to go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where we learn about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. We went through this, these verses in our responsive reading this morning. Rich referred to these verses in Sunday school. See, generations later, following the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the lives of the patriarchs, the captivity in Egypt, and the Exodus, the seventh day was given preeminence in Israel by becoming essentially the text for the fourth commandment, which was again our responsive reading this morning. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." The Sabbath day was to be one of complete rest from life's labors. Like God's rest, it's blessed, and thus its observance by God's people is essential to their spiritual growth and health. The Sabbath rest is supposed to signify several things. 
First, this day is designed to celebrate creation. By keeping the Sabbath, God's people entered into a seven-day rhythm of work and rest. I listened to one guy uh, uh, this week as I was preparing for this, said, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, before uh, Christ, we had the Saturday Sabbath. After Christ, we had the Sunday Sabbath. We came to America, we couldn't decide, and we took both. Amen. The, uh, I'm not so sure that that exactly how that happened, but the seventh day points to the, the Hebrew worshiper to a day of rejoicing over the created work of God. That's part of the rationale. We're to rejoice over and rejoice in creation. In fact, the ancient Jewish rabbis felt uh, this was a particularly appropriate day to obey the command, be fruitful and multiply. They actually said that. You got like extra points. The Jewish theologian Abraham uh, Herschel writes, It is a day on which we are called upon to show what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. And the Sabbath implicitly instructed all humanity that there is more to life than work. It affords God's people the time to hear and meditate on God's word, to contemplate eternal things and to pray. In fact, the prophet Isaiah sings of it in Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we are to celebrate creation and to follow the model of God by taking a day of rest. Secondly, we see this day is designed to celebrate redemption. The Sabbath is also to remember and celebrate redemption. And in the book of Deuteronomy, when we get the second, sort of the reminder version of the Ten Commandments, it's more of an extended version of the Fourth Commandment. And Moses adds in Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Remember the context. Context is king. Love that. This is being given to the Israelites in the Exodus, in the wilderness, while they're out. Okay? They get Exodus 20 near the beginning, Deuteronomy 5 near the end. And in Egypt, Israel had been harshly, cruelly overworked. The Bible says they were forced to make bricks without straw. And Pharaoh only let them go, and God brought about his mighty deliverance at the Passover. And with their redemption from Egypt came the rest that had not been theirs for hundreds of years, the entire time they were slaves in Egypt, 400 years, they were not allowed the privilege of the Sabbath. As far as we know, they were forced to work all seven days. And so now that they're freed, 
they're finally able to rest on the Sabbath, and in so doing, they're to reflect on their miraculous redemption. So these two versions of the Ten Commandments give us the twofold meaning of the seventh day for Israel, the celebration of God as creator and the celebration of God as redeemer. You're going to hear a lot in Genesis about those two words. Creator, redeemer, creation, redemption. It's going to come back often. And the Sabbath's purpose is to grace God's people. To grace their bodies, creation, with rest. <coughs> Most of us are in favor of rest. Some of us probably aren't. Probably shouldn't be in favor of that right at this moment. You should be listening. <laughs> and it's to grace their souls, redemption. And to grace it with gratitude, providing Israel with relief from their labors so they can focus on God and gratefully celebrate Him as their Creator and Redeemer. So it's celebrate creation, celebrate redemption, and third, the Sabbath rest is to serve as a covenant sign. The Sabbath observance became a preeminent sign of God's covenant with Israel. After the tabernacle was built, the Sabbath was regarded as a sign of the covenant between God and his people. Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And then a few verses later, Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17 Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And a key thing to note at this point in history is no other people had the Sabbath. No one but Israel had this. God meant them to be his people. So the Sabbath persisted throughout the centuries as a covenant sign of grace for God's people. And what grace it was. The compulsory rest of the Sabbath gave God's people time to reflect on eternal things, that indeed life was more than work. And on that day, their minds are drawn to the initial rest of God after creation. And as they gazed up at the stars, they saw, as the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. When you go out at night, as I did last night, and you look up, you can get past the ambient light of uh, the culture and civilization. You see the stars and the moon and everything in the sky. It is supposed to remind you of the power of God. It's supposed to remind you that God is creator. And as they rested, they're also reminded that the creator had redeemed them from slavery. And it's often the Sabbath custom in the Hebrew community to sing the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15, which sort of catalogs their deliverance. 
And the Sabbath thus afforded them time to celebrate and worship God as creator and redeemer. The quietness of the Sabbath allowed them time to reflect on the law. Statutes became their delight and their counselors. The Sabbath is indeed a grace and sign of the covenant. The Sabbath is a great gift of God to his people. You can imagine all the other countries around them. You get what? Why don't we get that? But like any gift, it can be abused. It can be taken for granted and eventually ignored. Or it can become a burden and no longer be the delight that God intended. And the reality is, I think, most Christians, particularly in this country, tend towards one or the other. Many of us move towards license, and the Sabbath eventually loses all meaning. Others of us move towards legalism, and the Sabbath becomes a chore and a means to justify ourselves. So what do we do? As always, the answer is found in turning to Jesus. And going back to Rich's slide, do you remember the, the fifth principle of interpretation? It's all about Jesus. That's right. Good to know. And there are several gospel stories that address just this issue. In fact, there was too much in the New Testament to draw from, so I just selected uh, two. And let's look at, at these two that come to us from Mark 2 and 3, and we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I know, three blanks in one line. I was like on a mean streak or something. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's start with Mark 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, speaking of Jesus, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of uh, Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The law of God directed that you had to rest from your work one day in seven. That's wonderful, of course. But the religious leaders of the day had fenced in this law with a stack of specific regulations. And there were actually 39 specific activities that you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping grain which is what the Pharisees accused the disciples of doing. Now, this sort of legalistic view still holds many parts of the world, many parts of Israel. If you go into the old city of Jerusalem uh, or very close to there, you'll find, uh, like on the Sabbath, the elevators automatically stop at every floor because it would be work to push the button. I thought they were broken. You know, I was kind of, it stops at every floor. I'm like on the 10th floor, you know. It's going to take an hour to get there, but that's the rule. So, you know, and they've learned lots of ways to get around the rules. Like you can't cook on the Sabbath, that's work. 
but apparently it's okay to hire somebody else to come cook for you. Um, so there's all sorts of issues here. But I think it's very interesting. Mark doesn't really comment on this. He just sort of says it out. This is what Jesus says. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he immediately goes on to record a second incident that took place on the Sabbath. Mark 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and as a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. First thing we see here is Jesus unites his enemies. Pharisees and Herodians agree on nothing. They hate each other. These are basically the the Romans, the Herodians follow the Roman laws and the Roman rules and license and everything goes. And the Pharisees, as you know, were the classic uh, picture of legalism. So why does Jesus become angry with them? Because the Sabbath is about restoration. It's about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, restoring the broken. To heal the man's withered hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. And yet the leaders are so concerned that the Sabbath regulations be observed, they don't want Jesus to heal this man. An incredible example of missing the forest for the trees. Their hearts are as withered as the man's hand. And they're insecure and they're anxious about the regulations. They're judgmental instead of caring. Why? Religion. Jesus shows in these two encounters that there are two radically different viewpoints here. Imagine two people, they're both trying to obey the law of God, yet they operate from these two different opposing viewpoints. Both want to keep the Sabbath day, but in one case the obedience is a burden, an enslavement, while in the other it's a delight, it's a gift. How can that be? One way is religion, which is fundamentally advice. And the other is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus which begins and ends with news. These are completely different things. Most people in the world believe that if there is a God, you relate to God by being good. Most Christians believe you relate to God by being good. Every survey I've ever seen that anybody has taken, however well done or however poorly done, always comes out that there's lots of Christians in this country who go to church, who believe the Bible, who think you relate to God by being good. In fact, most religions are based on that principle, although there's a million different variations of it. But they all have the same logic. If I perform, if I obey, I'm accepted. But the gospel of Jesus is not only different from that, but it's diametrically opposed to that. 
Instead of saying, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm fully accepted in Christ. Therefore, I obey. You see the difference. Do you obey to get your acceptance? Or do you believe that you're accepted? And therefore, you can freely and joyfully obey. You study and obey the law of God in order to discover the kind of life that you should live in order to please the one who created you and redeemed you. You want to be like the one who delivered you from sin. And so here in the Gospel of Mark, in the face of this self-righteous religious preoccupation, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He affirms, even celebrates the original purpose of the Sabbath, the need for rest. And yet he utterly squashes the legalism around its observance. And he does so by pointing to himself. Jesus could have claimed divine authority to change the Sabbath by saying something along the lines of, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. But in fact, he says so much more. We're getting to the end. Hang in there. The word Sabbath means a deep rest, a deep peace. It's a near synonym for shalom, the state of wholeness and flourishing every dimension of life. And when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus means that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of deep rest we need. He has come to completely change the way we rest. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste of the deep divine rest we need. And Jesus is its source. When Jesus calls you to rest, he's calling you to take time off, physical and mental time off from work on a regular basis. But there's another level of rest, a much deeper level. We started with this morning with Genesis, an account of God's creation of the world. And there we read that God rested from his work. And again, that doesn't mean that God got tired. God doesn't get tired. But a different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work, you can leave it alone. Only when you can say about your work, I'm satisfied with it, it is finished, can you walk away. And when God finished creating the world, he said it is very good, and he rested. Most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves, to convince God, to convince others, to convince ourselves that we're good people. It's sort of, you might call it the work beneath our work. It's the work of self-justification. It's the work that we truly need rest from. And that work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. At the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said, I'm satisfied, it's finished, and he could rest. At the end of his great act of redemption on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, and we can rest. On the cross, Jesus was saying of your work beneath your work, the thing uh, that makes you truly weary, this need to prove yourself because uh, who you are and what you do is never good enough, that it is finished. He has lived the life you should have lived. He's died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you and you can be satisfied with you and with your life. 
You can take all the vacations in the world, but if you don't have the deep rest of the soul resting in what Jesus did on the cross, you'll never truly rest. On the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from God so we can have the deep rest of knowing that he loves us and our sins have been forgiven. Jesus says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. His self-awareness is startling. No other human teacher has ever made uh, anything like the claims Jesus makes. There are plenty of people who've said something like, I'm the divine consciousness. But they think of the divinity as being in all of us, in the rocks and the trees and the human spirit. Jesus, however, understands that there's a God who is uncreated, beginningless, infinitely transcendent, who made this world, who keeps everything in the universe going so that all the molecules, all the stars, all the solar systems are being held up by the power of this God. And Jesus says, that's who I am. And you need to rest on that truth. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made all things for yourself. You have made us for yourself. You have made us to find the Sabbath rest that can only be found in Christ. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Apparently, he knew that life apart from Christ is just striving, that men and women will remain restless regardless of what they attain in this world. He knew that we'll never find rest apart from the redemption in Christ. Oh, Lord, grant that we would know you better through the book of Genesis, which is your word. And I ask that you would grant that we would believe it and that we would live by it, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.